May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. It's the second Sunday of Advent. And as Rob said, uh, I heard last week from a bunch of you, aren't we supposed to have a lot of Christmas decorations? We're going to get there. We created this week, the children's ministry did with Rob in terms of a journey. Uh, it's hard for us to understand that, first, that group of people in the first century that welcomed the Messiah because they had waited thousands of years. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years they had waited. And so uh, we created this in a sense of a journey. So every week is a little bit of a journey on the way to the excitement of the Christ's birth. The Christmas decorations will appear. They're appearing slowly. And uh, you'll see more now as we get closer to Christmas. Last week we talked about what does it look like to feel desolate and then to feel loved. Today we're going to talk about what does it feel like to be listless and then to find joy. How does that happen? You see, when we sing, we light the candles, hope, joy, peace, love, we light all those. Um, Sometimes they just become... Um, a little bit sterile to us. We hear them so many times that uh, we forget what they're really all about. So the children's ministry wanted to talk about the journey to get to each of the meaning behind the four um, candles. And so we have two of them up here, and we have two more Advent Sundays to go. I just read from you a passage out of Job. Um, And so the question is, what is it like to feel listless? So I did a lot of research just looking at different definitions and how people think when they're listless. Some of you have been there, probably all of you, at least one time or other. It's a sense of a growing deadness. You don't feel so well. You almost become dead to emotions for a period of time. Um, you You get very little interest in wanting to do things has a sense of indifference about it. In your English Bible, we often translate the word behind this concept of listless as callous. And that's not meant to communicate so much a hard heart as it is a, I don't know what to do. It's just an empty feeling. Not sure where to go. Uh, It's a sense of spiritless, uncaring. It's hard to care. Your emotions feel dead. It's hard to care. You feel lost, wandering, joyless. You've all been through it. Some of you are going through it right now. Some of you are. When I lost my first wife, I, it took me a while to recapture my vision and my hope and my joy and my dream. And uh, I woke up one morning and I was by myself. I had two little kids. And I remember the emptiness, the loneliness, the listless feeling. I I have no idea where to go. If I hadn't had, I jumped in the car. We had a house, I had a house full of family. I jumped in the car and just drove for three days. I don't even remember where I drove. And uh, they were all terrified because they didn't know where I went. And and if I hadn't had two little children, I might still be driving. I don't know. And, uh, but I remember that feeling of just, I don't know where to go. I don't know what this means. I don't know how to interpret this. And some of you are there. So what I read to you was a little passage out of Job. You may remember the story of Job. 
He's one of those places where we can find an example of this listlessness. You know, everything was fine. He was a very wealthy man, had a lot of children. Uh, life was going good. And so Satan, as long as the angels, they came before God as they do regularly. And so God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's a pretty faithful man. There's nothing like him on the earth. And Satan says, well, what do you expect? You won't let me touch him. There's a lesson right there that we are protected. And God said, okay, do whatever you want to him. Just don't take his life. And in one day, he lost all of his children, lost all of his wealth, and was hit with this very painful, very painful disease. All in one day. I can't even imagine the shock of that. That pain lasted for a whole year. If you haven't read the story, it's worth reading the wanderings because he starts out very faithful. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You know, faithful is the Lord. And at the end of his year, he's now shaking his fist at God and said, where are you? After a year of intense pain. When you read in there, his friends, when they showed up, they didn't even recognize him. He was so sick. And so he shakes his fist and says, where are you, God? If you would show up and listen, you would repent because I haven't done anything wrong. It's a wonderful journey of how God never abandons us. So God does show up and they have a conversation. The interesting, one of the interesting things about the end of the story is that he says to his three friends who showed up to give him wisdom, okay, he says to his three friends, Job's going to offer a sacrifice on your behalf so I don't kill you. It's a good warning about for us not to give too much advice to people because their wisdom was foolishness, as most of our wisdom is. Presence is far more important than advice. And they almost lost their lives. So upset God was in their foolishness, their foolish wisdom. But at the very beginning of the story, when he's lost everything and the pain is intense, he doesn't know it's going to be a year. Here's what he says. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness Claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, that very night that he was born, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, not be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. That's listless. And if you read through the rest of the book, what you'll discover is that his listlessness begins to grow more and more and more. He starts off well-intended. And it's a model for us that even when we lose our faith, God never abandons us. And he's, he's held up as a model in the New Testament, of what it means. There's that sense of listlessness, that joyless existence, that callousness, the indifference, where something has overtaken you so powerfully that you can no longer, you've lost your way, and you're just wandering, and you don't know where to go. We have plenty of examples in the Bible of this. 
I was looking through, and we get little snippets in the life of Christ, how the the uh, disciples themselves ended up this way. For example, at Jesus' temptation in Matthew 26, I mean his temptation, I'm sorry, at his uh, betrayal, his arrest. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with great with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, you did not arrest me then. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. It doesn't tell us what happened in that interim period, but at the, end of the, at the end of the three days after he's died, we find them all in a room. They have no idea what to do. All of their hopes have been fulfilled in the Messiah, and all their hopes have been dashed, taken away, gone. He's dead. He's dead. And so I'm sure they all took off. Here's that listless feeling again. What do we do now? Where do we go? It's fascinating to me that after his ascension, when they've met him now, he disappears again. That's often happens in our life. God comes and goes. It feels like, doesn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? By the way, that was quoted by Jesus, but that was a Psalm of David when he's running and hiding. God, where'd you go? Where did you go? And you've been there. So here he's already appeared after the ascension. And they're filled with joy. But the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. And he disappears again. And they're sitting there wondering what to do. And John 21, Peter says, I'm going fishing. I just love that. That's so human. I'm going back to something that's comfortable. And the other disciples said, we're going to go with you. And they climbed into a boat. And Jesus appears on the shore. And so there's lots of these stories in Scripture where we're not alone. Okay? How many times have we talked about this? This is not a rule book. Even when we use the language law code, it's not a good term because they didn't understand laws the way we do today. Think of this as a series of snapshots by God of wisdom. Think of that. Okay? These are all stories of people that have gone before us. Hebrews says that these people, prior to the coming of Christ, they never saw the promise fulfilled, but they were faithful. Boy, do they have a great reward. They waited and waited and waited. You can just feel their listlessness. So when you take a look at this, it seems to come, this concept of listlessness, in one of two situations. It comes when either you lose your sense of hope for whatever reason, or... You never had it to begin with. And I would say that that last thing describes the world. They're wandering, looking. Um, it's interesting. I, I looked up the definition of joy, and here's how the world defines it. In some of our dictionaries, I, found, I picked one. The emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying keen pleasure. It's all circumstantially based. That's how the world defines joy. It's all about circumstances. There's something innate to us in our broken nature that we are, while we're created for joy, we don't know how to get there. And so we fill it. As Ecclesiastes says, chasing after the wind, looking for things that we're just grasping for air. Okay? 
And yet, when you study psychology, you learn something very interesting. That our natural tendency is to blame the circumstances around us for who we are. Why are you depressed? Well, my investments are doing terrible because the stock market's down. Why are you discouraged? We got turned down for a mortgage on our house. And the list goes on and on and on. Why are you angry? Because my spouse was mean to me or my friend was mean to me. You see, we blame who we are on our circumstances. The truth is, circumstances do not determine your character. They reveal it. That's not why you're angry. You're angry because you're broken. That's why. And circumstances just expose what's already there. So if God really wants to transform you into the image of his son, the greatest gift he can give you is to take control of your circumstances and begin to expose those inner broken pieces so that he can bring transformation and healing. I think that's what we see in the world. They're just grasping after circumstances. Whatever I can control, that'll bring me happiness. It does for a little bit. You all know that. But it never lasts, does it? It doesn't last. That's how the world conceives of joy. And I would argue that, um, that this movement from listlessness, which is the product of a fallen world, to joy involves something very different that the world cannot grasp. It just simply can't get there. Christ talks about this in Matthew 13 after he gives a parable of the sower. Most of you know that parable, so I'm not going to read it. But, uh, but after he gave the parable of the sower, the disciples came to him and said, why do you keep speaking to us in parables? And he quotes Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. That's grasping after the wind. And then he goes on. For this people's heart has become calloused. There's that word that we translate. It's not about hardness. It's about lostness. Okay? These people's hearts are wandering. They're looking for pleasure any place except where they're going to find it. He goes on, they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, otherwise, if they had listened, God says, I would heal them. I would save them. That describes the world's journey. That's why Ecclesiastes says it's just chasing after the wind, grasping for air. All the money in the world will not make you happy. But there is a country restaurant song that says you can't buy a boat. (laughs) But even then, you still won't be happy. You still won't be happy. So Paul, in Ephesians 4, uses this term to describe the Gentiles. He says, don't be like the Gentiles who never look for God. Their heart is described by this listlessness, this wandering So, but what about a Christian? Rob started dancing into this this morning, this whole concept of joy for us. It's something a little different than the world. It's big. It's really big. And honestly, it takes a lot of of walking to get there. It really does. So here's here's a better definition of joy for us. It's real, uh, real genuine joy is a byproduct. You'd hear that language. 
It's not the goal. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of having a strong and intimate relationship with Christ. To truly know Christ is to experience genuine joy. So rather than it being circumstantial, it's transformative. It's a gift from God. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love. The world doesn't know anything about love. Not really. It pretends. It's an illusion. Joy. The world knows nothing about joy. It's an illusion. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift from walking faithfully. That's where joy comes. And so this concept of joy for the Christian is a transformative, abiding sense of what we feel inside as we move to the Lord. Now, we all go through periods that feel desolate, right? We talked about that last week. It feels desperate. It feels like we're in a desert somewhere. And that's part of the journey. That's part of the journey. Those moments when you think God is silent, he, is, he may be silent, but he hadn't gone anywhere. That's where your faith gets tested. How do you know your faith is real if it's never tested? How do you know? It has to be tested. And then out the other side of the testing comes greater confidence, which leads to deeper joy. So this joy is a byproduct of being human, but it's a byproduct of being human with Christ. Because we were made. We were made for the deepest joy. We were. In all the, all the coffees and beers I've had around the county, and I've asked people over and over again, when you think of God, what do you think of him like? Is he, is he a God that wants to bring you the greatest joy possible? Or is he a God just waiting for you to trip up? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. The overwhelming response is that one. I don't know how we got there as a church in our country, but we are there. That's how most people think of God, judgmental. Yeah, we got the wrong picture. You see, this is a picture. It's a snapshot of people that have gone before us. And almost all of them, really all of them, have failed. And it's a picture in various cultures, various scenarios, various time periods of God stepping in. Stepping in. If you don't read the Bible discriminating in a discriminating way, if you read it and you just read it, don't pay attention with details. God looks very angry and mean. He's not. He is to those who reject him but not to the faithful. Every step of the way, when he steps into the world, you know what? He's doing it to help them. So that raises the question, true joy is what we were created for. How do we get there? How do we get there? And I'm just going to give you a few thoughts, a few simple thoughts to close. Number one, uh, by the way, the Psalms are filled with all kinds of stuff on joy. Just do a concordant search on joy and you're going to... Hundreds, Okay. But I only picked a few to illustrate a point. Psalm 67, verse 4. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you, God, you rule the peoples with equity and you guide the nations of the earth. Okay? People experience joy together when we experience the Lord's blessing. That's part of it, when he experiences blessing. Then you go on to Psalm 19, and this is a very interesting one. The word, all Psalm 119 is filled with this language, but Psalm 19, the word itself, God's word brings joy. The precepts, those are the commands, the things we see in here. The precepts, the principles of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Why? 
Why does this give light? If you read it, it feels filled with a lot of, it looks like a lot of ugly stuff in here. Because remember what we've talked about, the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, and uh, they had never heard what God thinks. He hadn't spoken yet. And when he decides to speak, it's bringing light into a world. All these principles in the Mosaic law are wonderful. Paul said they're good, they're right, they're holy, they're pure, they're perfect. They're wonderful because we begin to learn what God has created us for. Do not murder. To you, that makes common sense, but it didn't to them. Prior to the Ten Commandments, no nation ever thought of murder from a moral perspective, as far as I can tell. And you think, how can that be? But it is. All around the world when I go, they don't have, the, they don't have these principles in their culture. In the Hindu cultures, they have no concept what dignity is. You grew up with it. They did not. And when I start teaching them what dignity is, it takes them a while to grasp it. But when they grasp it, they stand back with eyes like that for the first time. And that's what he's talking about there. Giving light to the eyes. And they're going, what? You mean I'm important? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. You're made in the image of God. And if God had not given this, we would never experience joy. There's no way I can overstate how dark the world was was and still is. And when he spoke these, these are snapshots of wisdom all the way through various cultures and time periods with people that didn't know. Yeah, there's joy in that. Psalm 126, that's a whole psalm just based on joy itself. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. So when we experience his power, when he's done great things, we relax and we go, oh, I love it we begin to experience true joy. And then the last one, Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Now let's, let's modernize it. But let all of us who take refuge in the Lord be glad. Let us always sing for joy. God, spread your protection over us so that we who love your name may rejoice in you, may experience that joy in you. You see, the answer to the true joy is coming back to the Lord. That's why he created a church. That's why. I know that some of you are desolate. Some of you are listless. I know that. Life is hard. I'm not going to deny it. As I said, when I lost my first wife, I just wandered for a while until I began to recapture joy. And that's the cycle we go through. And that generates hope, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, that moves us toward the ultimate reality. This is an illusion. The ultimate reality where we will finally experience joy continuously. Continuously. But in the meantime, we got work to do. We have friends, neighbors. This is the one time in the year when you can say to a stranger, a friend, a relative, it doesn't matter. All you have to do is say, if you're looking for a place to worship on Christmas Eve, come with me for a candlelight service. The most they'll do is say, I'm not interested. They won't even use to say that. But some of them will come. I've already said it to several people, strangers, restaurants, grocery stores. If you're looking for a place to worship, come to our church. Let taste joy. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good, David said. He is good. Father, thank you for being so good to us, for being so kind to us. Thank you for, uh, it's not your fault that we, we fell and sinned. We're still stupid, that's the problem. <laughs> but thank you in the midst of that, uh, you didn't give up on us. And you gave us a way to taste you and see what you're really like. Father, help us to continue to be a church that develops this culture, this, this drive to love our neighbors and show them a way to you to find true joy. As Jesus said, if they only listened, if they only listened, he would heal them. So I pray that you would use this this Advent season. In your son's name we pray, amen.